You see, though, for a moment, have you ever had it explained to you before the difference between anger and annoyance? Listen to my story this morning. <clears throat> a young girl who was writing a paper for as a school assignment, and she came to her father and she said, Daddy, what, what's the difference between anger and annoyance? And the father said, well, it's a matter of degree. Let, let me show you what I mean. And with that, he went to the phone and he dialed a number just at random. And a man answered the phone and he said, hello, is Melvin there? And the man answered, there is no one living here named Melvin. Why don't you learn to look up numbers before you dial? See, said the father to his daughter, that man was not a bit happy with that call. Probably we caught him, he was busy doing something, and we annoyed him. Now watch. The father dialed the number again, same number. Man answered. He said, hello, is Melvin there? Now, look here, came the reply. You just called this number, and I told you there's no Melvin living here. You've got a lot of guts calling again, and slammed down the receiver really hard. Father turned to his daughter and said, you see, honey, that was anger. Now I'm going to show you what annoyance really, like really annoyed means. So he picks up the phone, and he dials the same number. And a man came on the phone with a violent voice, and he said, Hello! And the father calmly said, Hello, this is Melvin. Have there been any calls for me? (laughs) (laughs) This true story came out about 10 or 11 or 12 years ago. I don't know who's counting. They go so fast. Out in... uh, Palmdale, California. This man stopped at a local fast food. Um, I think it was a Burger King. It doesn't really matter. I always said about fast food, both those both the words in it are wrong. And he, he ordered four sandwiches uh, at the drive-through window. Now the cost then, the the total bill, I don't know what he ordered, was four dollars and thirty-three cents. And I want you to just kind of put that in your mind right now. Four point three three. When he handed the girl the drive up his debit, his debit card, she absentmindedly punched in the numbers, and then she punched them in again without erasing the original ones, creating a total bill of $4,334.33. So he signed the slip, didn't even look at it, didn't check it, and the charge went through to his checking account, and obviously, for at least temporarily, left him penniless. Newspapers got a hold of the story, and here's, what she, here's the headline. The most expensive meal in history. Now, that part of it, the most expensive meal in history, probably isn't true. Probably that's not really accurate, because I would suspect there have been more expensive meals in history than that one. This morning, I'm going to be speaking to the subject, comparing two meals, I've read of rich people in, in, in New York or Los Angeles or Paris or wherever uh, who've paid far more than that just for an evening on the town. I mean, far more than that. But no matter what meal a rich person might buy, the, uh, uh, the cost of what they'd purchase pales in comparison 
to one of the most expensive meals in history. As a matter of fact, the one that you and I are going to be reading about today from Scripture. Matter of fact, that meal cost more than Adam and Eve ever wanted to pay, and it literally bankrupt, bankrupted them and in turn the human race too. The sad thing is, it wasn't even the best food on the menu. And the Bible tells us that God gave Adam and Eve and every tree to eat from except one. In the book of Genesis, and if you want to open there, just get into the first couple pages, that's where I'm going to be tells us there were plenty of other good trees to eat from. If you open your Bible to the first few pages and go to Genesis chapter 2 and come all the way down to verse 9, you'll read words like this. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So if that was true, that they had all these other trees to eat from, and it was, then why did they do what they did? And I want to just stop there, and how many have ever read this story before, or heard of it, or know of it, or aware of it? Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay. Have, how many have ever wondered, has anybody ever wondered, why did they do what they did. Ever wonder that? Does it bug you? Yeah, it does me too. Uh, what did they bring on for us that wasn't really planned? Yeah, they brought on death. And weeds. And labor. How many mothers are not that happy with what went on? Okay. See, it'd be easy to say, use the old Flip Wilson line, the devil made me do it. But it's more than that, much, much more. They picked the wrong item on the menu because they chose to do so. I'm going to start here, but I want you to stay with the, the whole thought, if you would, this morning. Eve chose to disobey God. Now, you say Satan talked her into it, but she knew, because I'm sure Adam had told her, what God had said. She knew God didn't want her to eat of a certain tree. She knew God had said that those who ate of that tree would ultimately face what? Death. But she knew God had said that those who ate of the tree would face death, but she chose anyway to eat of that tree. So she made bad choices. She started right in with a bad choice. Her first choice occurred before Satan even spoke a word. So I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 3, and let's read the first three verses. And if you're not familiar with Genesis chapter 3 and you call yourself a Bible student, you really need to get used to those verses because it says a lot about the history of mankind and it says a lot about the nature that, we, that we've been given and it, it speaks a lot about man's free will that God has given us. So in Genesis chapter 3, the first three verses, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made and uh, 
He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will what? Or you will die. Okay, let's back up. What did God say she could not do? Anyone? Okay. What did God say that she could not do? Wait. Okay, we have some theological discrepancies here, and we have to clear them up. God said, I didn't say what did she say, I said what did God say that she could not do? She could, see how many of you said you were familiar with this story and now you've, your brain's gone to jelly. What did God say she could not do? Huh? Eat the fruit of that one particular tree. Or they would bring, that would bring on what? What does Eve say that she could not do? Two things. We must not, it's right on the screen. We must not eat the fruit or... Where'd that come from? God never said anything about touching it. You're, making, you're helping me make a really good point here. God didn't say she could not touch the tree. He said she could not eat the fruit from that tree. But she chose to add just that one little restriction. Just that one little thing that made it better. You see, she chose to add to God's commandments. And so she chose to improve on God's will or God's plan. And let me just tell you, that was all the wiggle room that Satan needed to begin playing with her mind. And we ask ourselves, well, why would that little bit of information give Satan wiggle room? Because once you get used to the idea, and listen to this very carefully. Here's a lesson. Because once you get used to the idea that you can improve on what God said... Once you believe you can change it when you want to, once you can believe that you are the exception to the rule, once you can accept that you can tinker with God's will and plan and word for your life, then it gets easier to improve on other things that God commanded. And once you get used to improving on God's word and way, you can end up being the final arbiter, the ultimate judge of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable in what God says. That is just plain wrong. Now, how do I know that it's wrong? Because Jesus said so. If you were to go over to Matthew chapter 15, down in verse 9, you would hear Jesus speaking of hypocrites who were a law unto themselves, he said. And he said these words, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, once you or I get used to accepting improvements on God's commands, the com so that improvement would be a commandment of men, 
then our worship becomes vain. Boy, this is very, very important to the New Testament Christian. Another word for vain, another word for vain is empty. Another word for vain is worthless. Adding to God's word can make our worship worthless. I want to say that again. Adding to God's word anything that God did not already say or declare can make our worship worthless. Now, why would God be so adamant about opposing these improvements? Because the only way we can deal with the trials and tribulations of this life is by clinging to the pure and unadulterated and unchanged forever word of God. And that's why he's given us his commandments, that we might live by them and that we might prosper in the land. You know, it's kind of like taking medicine. How many of you here, not to get too far into your personal lives, but how many of you here take medicine on a regular basis, some kind of medicine? Okay, those of you that don't, that's great. Proud of you. You're not making Madison Avenue very happy, but we'll catch you before long. And, 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 and how many of you take that medicine that you, that you indicated? You take it regularly. I mean, you, either every day or twice a day or so many times a week or, you know, whether it's five doses or 10 or 20 or 30. Some of us are getting up there. You know, you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a prescription i got to just tell you this. If you go to the doctor and you don't come out with a prescription, you really haven't been to the doctor. <laughs> You've wasted your whole day. And his or hers. You take that or have that sent to the pharmacist who will fill it and give you instructions on how many different ways you can die if you take that medicine. <laughs> how many of you ever read those long lists of things? And You, you, want, you want to try this sometime. Go to the pharmacist and pick up, like, multiple prescriptions, maybe three or four. I mean, you'll die of heart failure right there before you get done reading all those things. If you follow the instructions, though, you're very apt to get satisfactory results, especially if the doctor has diagnosed properly. But if you decide, well, you know, I don't know how well this prescription's working, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fiddle with it a little bit. I'm going to add to it. They said to take this twice a day. I think I'll take it four times a day. I'll get better twice as fast. Uh, well, you, 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 you check, the, uh, check the records of the ER and find out how many people are doing that. Might surprise you. But let me just tell you, if you add to the prescription, you might end up with some dangers. Let's say you don't tell your doctor you're taking another medicine, for instance. So there's some kind of contraindication and it's dangerous to mix two kinds of medicine because they end up canceling each other out or making one useless and, and even worse, the two medicines maybe together can be very dangerous and could be life-threatening and all kinds of things can happen. See, a wise patient will take the medicine the physician prescribes and will take that medicine no more, no less and try to stay somewhat on schedule with it. Now you go to the, the physician, you, you've read all the the stuff that you got from the pharmacist, you're starting to have palpitations, you visit the cardiologist, the cardiologist says, uh, take one aspirin once a day. It'll be good for your heart. So the doctor cardiologist tells you to do that, and you do it. 
Uh, I heard of a guy who went to the cardiologist and cardiologist said, you ought to take an aspirin a day and stay on that regimen. He thought, well, that's good for my heart. If I take two or three a day, that'll be even better. So he added on his own to the prescription, to the word of the physician, and day after day, he took two or three or whatever number he thought was better instead of one. And everything went well, <coughs> really well. Starting to feel really, really strong, really good until the day came where his nose started to bleed and it bled and it bled and it bled and it bled and he panicked and he was rushed to the ER. And you know, you know what the problem was? The problem was two or three aspirin when the doctor told him one. Now, this is what we call a fire extension of an illustration to make a point. So don't miss the point. He had added, that man had added to the word of the physician and it hurt him and he became seriously ill. He actually could have died from a bleed. Now, there's a lesson here. You and I can't add to God's word by taking the advice of the horoscopes and the psychics. Be, be amazed how many Christians depend on that stuff. You cannot add to God's teachings the teachings of the Discovery Channel or the History Channel. You, you can't mix the pure medicine of God with the advice of often God, ungodly psychologists or sociologists or the teachers of science. And most importantly, you cannot mix the commandments of God with the man-made doctrines of various preachers or priests or so-called church leaders. You just can't do it. Well, actually, you can do it. You can add to God's word. But mark my word, sooner or later, Satan will come back and use it against you. Just like he used it against Eve. So Eve started out not so well <laughs> by making a bad choice when she added to God's word. And that's the avenue Satan took to deceive her the rest of the way. Now notice how Satan tempts her. She made the bad choice. She added to God's word. Now notice how Satan used that. We'll look at verses 4 and 5. And Satan's speaking here, and he said, you will not certainly die. Just, just think about this, this, this discourse here, this conversation. And verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. She'd gotten used to not fully trusting in the commands that she'd been given, so Satan took her the rest of the way. And essentially, Satan told her that God had lied to her. You see, you're not going to die. You're not even going to get sick. You're okay. There are no consequences to your choices. You can dabble with a certain sin, this sin or that sin or another sin. It's not going to hurt you, Eve. You can even be bitter and vengeful and hateful as much as you want. 
You can be lustful and sexually active, look at X-rated trash, no problem. You can be proud and selfish and self-righteous, and it's not going to make a bit of difference because there is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no judgment, there is no hell, and there is no eternal regret. What have you got to fear? He's saying the same thing to people today. Just do what you want to do. It won't damage your soul at all. It'll be okay because God already has lied to you. And you know why God lied? I'll tell you. He said, because he knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes are going to be open. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to enjoy life to the fullest. He wants to keep you fat, dumb, and happy. Because he knows that once you eat of that forbidden fruit, you'll be just like him. And that's not going to happen because he's too jealous to allow you to do that. He wants to keep you under his thumb. He wants to control you. Come on, girl. Do you really want to live your life controlled by an uncaring, spiteful, selfish God like that? Are you serious? Throw off the shackles of those old religious do's and don'ts and quit being a goody two-shoes. Live life to the fullest. Listen, girl, you deserve better. So Eve begins to think about all this. She begins to look at that tree. Oh, 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 oh. In verse 6, just carrying on this story, we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. I I don't know if you ever see or hear or read in your Bible certain things and wonder about them. I don't know how many stories there are in the Bible. I just sat and wondered about them. I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about this story quite a bit lately. I've often wondered on that day. I wonder if Eve was hungry. I, 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 do you ever wonder that? Or you don't care? She might have been ravenously hungry. I don't know. And like, oh, man, I'm going to eat. I don't think so, though. I mean, were there no other trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food? Remember what Genesis 2.9 said when we read that earlier? It said the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. All kinds. But see already, Satan's lies had taken root in Eve's mind and in her heart. What she really saw was that the tree was also desirable, not only for food, but what else? For gaining, tell me, wisdom. Wisdom that God had lied to her about. And so she chose to disobey this God who had so unfairly denied her this blessing. Make no mistake, Eve chose to disobey God. But at least Eve had an excuse. She was deceived. Here's what Paul says. 
writing about this a long time afterwards, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, he says, the woman, that's Eve, was deceived and became a sinner. Oh, well, yeah, I know that story, Bob. I'm very familiar with it. I've read my Bible, and I know the Genesis account, and I know how it builds in in verses 1 and 2, and then, boom, verse 3, it just, everything falls apart. Adam and Eve were deceived. I know, I can understand. Whoa! That's not what Paul said at all. Paul said, the woman was deceived and became a sinner. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Here's what 1 Timothy 2.4 says. And Adam, the rest of it, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Timothy 2.14. Yet you take this Bible, look through the whole of the New Testament, and you'll never find Eve as being the bad guy, or the bad girl in this case, in the story. Who always gets the blame? Tell me. Who do we always blame this on? Oh, please. Who do we blame it on? Adam. He gets all the blame. Let me give you a couple examples. Romans 5.12. Sin entered the world through... Anybody? One man. One man. And then because of that, death through sin. Not one woman, one man. And Paul writes in Romans 5.14, just two verses later, who was the man, Adam, and he goes on to say, death reigned from the time of Adam, didn't say from the time of Eve, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam. So have you ever wondered this? Why does Adam get all the blame? Adam was not deceived. Wait, though, the plot thickens and it's getting worse. Let's look at that verse 6 again. And let's see what else it says. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ran like a scared rabbit. Is that what your version says? And let's read it. And he ate it. Say, was that the apple on the... There's no mention of apples anywhere. I've often said it wasn't the apple on the tree. It was a pear on the ground. About Tuesday at 4.30 in the afternoon, you'll get that. And please don't call me. I know I'm going to be busy. So Eve took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, she's so sharing, who was with her, and he ate it. So now, let's ask some questions. Where was Adam then? Oh, I bet he was in the house washing dishes. Good subservient husband. No, he's probably out in the back 40, harvesting crops. Oh, no. Just in case we missed it, the Holy Spirit left it in here. Adam was with W-I-T-H, Eve, when Satan deceived her. See, I believe he was there. Of course he was. 
when Satan accused God of lying. He was there when Satan said, they wouldn't die. They're not going to die. He was there when Satan implied, you'll have all kinds of disadvantages if you go God's way, but just do what you want to do, and you'll get all the advantages you can ever think of. You just eat that fruit, and look what happens. And Adam was not deceived. I don't believe that Adam believed a word that the serpent was saying to Eve. To Eve. So why on earth would he eat the fruit? You ever think of that? See, there's a lot to the story that you just kind of took for granted, but you never really thought about the details of it. You never really thought, like, what was behind their reasoning and what prompted them to do certain things or to, do, to not do certain things? To act a certain way or not act a certain way? To decide certain ways and not to decide other ways? What was behind all of that? Adam was not deceived. He didn't believe a word that Satan was saying. So why would he eat this fruit? Why would Adam, who was not deceived, disobey God? And here's the crux of the matter right now. Because he chose to. I don't know precisely what Adam's reasoning was. The Bible doesn't tell us. And I think for good reason. But I have a pretty good hunch as to why Adam ate that fruit. And and have you ever thought about that? I think he could see that the wheels were turning in Eve's mind. And she'd already invaded that forbidden tree and something's going to come down here. Something's going to happen. And he didn't believe anything that Satan was saying. And he believed what God had told him. And I'm sure he had shared that with Eve. So so what's going on here when he made this choice to join her in this disobedience? I don't know what his reasoning was, but here's my hunch. And I hope you're with me. Here's my guess. He believed God. Christian, are you with me? He just didn't trust him. Why would Adam choose to disobey God? Because he chose to. Think about it. God said that the day they ate of the tree... They would die. And I think, I think death was pronounced then. They didn't just eat it and die, but they began to die. And Eve goes ahead and eats of the fruit of the tree. And what's going to happen as a result? What's going to happen? God said it. She's going to die. There was no mention of dying before. I don't think it was even in God's plan, but she's going she's to die. And Adam, in essence, is going to lose Eve. Think of the thought process here of the man seeing what's happening to the woman. 
He's going to lose this woman of whole. Whom he said in Genesis 2.23 that she was now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I think that's like him saying, wow, this is the most gorgeous thing I've ever laid my eyes on. Um, certainly it was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. Wow, you, uh, you're on the uptake today. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But don't take time to explain that to him now. Explain it over lunch, okay? Mm. I think he said when he saw her, mm, mm. Yeah, talking your language now, huh? And I think what was happening in his head is Adam was reasoning, and in his heart too, I guess, I don't want to lose her. But God said he was going to kill her. She's going to die for this. And he doesn't understand how important. God doesn't. Does God not know how important, how special this woman is to me? So I can't. Here's the crux. So I can't trust God to take care of this the right way. Stop, Bob. Stop, stop, stop. Emphasize. Have you and I ever said exactly the same thing? We've got a reason in our head how God should be operating on our behalf in a certain situation, but it doesn't happen the way we scripted it. So we get to the point where we say, well, I guess God's not going to do it the right way. I may just have to step in here. Because as you know, many times God needs our help. And I can't trust him to fix the problem. So I've got to, 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 I've got to. So I think Adam was reasoning. If I eat the fruit too, God won't kill both of us. I mean, he, may take one, he might take one of us, but not both because he loves us so much. He doesn't want to lose both of us. So I'm going to force God to fix this problem. Here we go, folks. This is it, 2014, on my terms. I think Adam was reasoning this because while Adam believed God, he didn't trust him. Here's what the writer of the Hebrews said in the 11th chapter, the, the, the hall of faith. In the, in the sixth verse, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. You see, believing in God is the core of being a Christian, being a believer. But believing God exists, I need to be careful here because I want you to fully understand and fully hear what else I have to say. But believing God exists is not enough. Because here's what verse 6 of Hebrews 11 goes on to say. The writer, understanding that we might not get this or might misinterpret, goes on to say that we not only must believe He exists, but that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, folks, we need to trust him. Because if we don't trust him, we'll be tempted to fix the problems in our lives on our own terms. Or even worse, we'll be tempted to try to force God to do things our way. You ever been in that situation? 
Let me just tell you, that's not where you want to go. That isn't going to work. You're just unhappy about it now. You're going to be right down miserable if that happens. You see, folks, faced with trials and temptations in our lives like we are, we need to believe and trust. We need to believe that God not only exists, but we ask what we need to trust that he'll take care of us. We need to trust that he will reward us when we earnestly seek his will in and for our lives. Hebrews 11.6. But sad to say, and it is sad to say, Adam and Eve didn't do that. That's why they failed. Eve failed because she didn't trust God's words. She knew what God had said. Adam had told her. She obviously knew what God had said because she had already in her mind before she met the serpent had added to it. So Eve failed because she didn't trust God's words. And Adam failed, mark it down, because he didn't trust God's faithfulness. Result? Result? They both ended up eating one of the most expensive meals in human history. Notice I said, and tried to accentuate, one of in all actuality, Adam and Eve did not eat the most expensive meal in all of history. Do you know what the most expensive meal in history was? I thank God that just two weeks ago today, I was able to walk down to these communion tables that we place on either side periodically. And after the covers had been removed from the trays, talk to you about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Now I know it doesn't, you, you don't think of that as a meal or a feast or a banquet. And it doesn't really amount to a whole lot. It's just a little piece of unleavened bread and some grape juice. Didn't cost the church a whole lot, a little bit, but not a whole lot, just a few dollars every time we set it out and a little bit of time to get it ready. It really doesn't cost our church much to make the communion meal available. It really doesn't. But it costs Jesus his blood. See, he paid for that meal that we enjoyed two weeks ago with his life. And in purchasing that meal, here's the beauty. Here's how we tie it together. You with me? You with me? Do this. Good. By purchasing that meal, 
Jesus undid the damage Adam and Eve brought on us by the meal which they had eaten. Woo! That's some good stuff right there. By purchasing that meal that we still memorialize and celebrate with his own blood and his own life and his very, the essence of who he was as as the God-man. By purchasing that meal, Jesus the Christ undid all the damage that Adam and Eve brought on us by the meal that they ate. One man, some years ago, wrote of the contrast between these two meals by contrasting the trees from which each was harvested. The one tree in the middle of the garden with forbidden fruit. The other tree planted by man on the hill called Gethsemane, the hill called Golgotha, the hill we call Calvary, as a means and an instrument of torture and execution. Tree number one was planted by God. The second tree was planted by man. Rather rudely and rather roughly, I might add. God forbade man to eat from the first tree, But man is freely invited to draw near and eat of the fruit of the second tree. Aren't you glad? The eating of the first tree, fruit from that tree, brought sin and death. By eating of the second tree and all that was accomplished on that tree comes life and salvation and eternal bliss. Aren't you glad? And Adam, by eating of the first tree was in essence turned out of paradise. While that repentant thief on the cross, by taking of what was offered on the second tree, entered paradise that very same day. Here's the good news. Paradise has already been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the costliest of all meals became a free meal for all who believe. Wow. Wow. And we can fully, fully, completely, and let me say it again, fully accept this free gift. And let me tell you how. First, by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Secondly, by accepting the fact that we have sinned. That's right. Every last one of us. From Eve and Adam and their descendants to the very last one of us. And we need to repent. Third, by confessing Jesus and Him alone as our Lord, 
making him the master, making him the owner, making him the new general manager of our lives, if you will. And fourth, as a testimony, we had three beautiful testimonies of this last week right here. And this isn't part of salvation, but it's part of the steps. Being buried in the waters of Christian baptism and rising up a new creature in Christ with a testimony for him. And then lastly, by living the rest of our days for his glory. Let me ask, have you done that? Let me ask, will you do it? Comparing two meals. Can we have a quiet time? Can we bow together and seek the Lord's face? And precious Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that as we look at the stories and the circumstances surrounding those stories, which sometimes with which we become maybe even too familiar, you show us the whole picture. And because we can compare today the cost of that first meal compared to the cost of the last meal, We can see what's been given for our salvation. And we thank you for that truth and we thank you for that blessing and we thank you for that freedom that we enjoy today, knowing Christ as personal Savior and Lord. And Father God, if there's anyone in here today that's never made that decision, never followed through, never accepted you, maybe believe that you exist, but have never accepted you or their need of repentance, and claimed you as the Lord and Savior of their lives, may this be the day. May this be the day. And may the thoughts and the intents of these words and this passage of Scripture, yet so familiar, may it ring true in all of our hearts. And may we thank you continually for the power and the peace and the prosperity and the eternal hope that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you're seeking, if you're in need of a Savior, if you're ready to move forward to believe and to trust, please speak to one of us today before you leave. God bless you. in his eyes because of his grace